Thoughts for Balfour and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome Craig Edwards back to the program. Craig and I discuss the Astros sign-stealing scandal and how much is too much cheating in baseball before we turn our attention to the offseason, the free agent market, and the troubling trend of good teams seeming interested in shedding good players to reduce payroll and avoid rich extensions. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of a tin of two early Christmas cookies, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including Craig's fine analysis of the trade and free agent markets, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel's top prospect lists, which kick off next week, and Jay Jaffe's Hall of Fame coverage. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Craig Edwards, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. Hello. How are you? Doing pretty well. I'm glad. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. See you next week. Yeah, that's right. By the time this goes up on Fangraphs, we'll be a day or two closer to the event. But yes, we'll we'll be in New York next week for Fangraphs Live! Exclamation point. Do they always have exclamation points? I, I was enthusiastic about the event when I did the announcement, so I think, uh, this I think one now we do. Others. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell people to buy tickets for it because we sold out, which is wild and exciting and still strange to me. But if people bought tickets and then had forgotten they did that because we started selling them quite early uh, relative to the date of the event, they should remember they have them and come uh, hang out with us. Fangrass Live colon. No tickets remaining. Very good. Very, very good. So yeah, so I'll see you in person next week, which is fun. But, you know, despite the season being over, there is some news in general baseball business, um, some of which is very businessy. So I thought we could start with the newsy bits and then get to the business bits, if that if that works for you. And the biggest news bit is that the Astros are cheaters. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Apparently a lot of people, I guess. <laughs> This has been whispered and then not uh, whispered about for a while now, the idea that they had engaged in some uh, skullduggery, some sign stealing aided by machines and computers and other such uh, devices that are prohibited by the rules. But this week we had a report from The Athletic, from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Relich, Uh, with a couple of people anonymously confirming those suspicions and rumors, and then Mike Fires going on the record saying that when he was on the Astros, he was a beneficiary of a a scheme. Do we want to call it a scheme? Yeah, definitely. There's some scheming involved, and they carried out the scheme pretty well, it, it seems like, although two years later... Well, I mean, I guess there was what makes this story different is Mike Fires going on the record, right? Because right. it's it had been reported that there was like garbage can hitting in the past, and people, you know, were like, "Well, that sounds bad, and there's nothing we can do about it." But now, once someone confirms that this is going on, it seems like there should be a response from from Major League Baseball more than the Astros doing an internal investigation. Yeah, it it would seem that, and I think, you know, this was uh, discussed 
even on the the playoff broadcasts throughout the the postseason and the the World Series that there seemed to be well I don't know if we can fairly call it paranoia given that um, there's past evidence of it having happened but that a number of teams seem to be quite concerned with the possibility that the Astros were stealing signs um, sometimes to the point of you know watching James Paxton switch signs up with no runners on in the first inning which seemed extreme but perhaps not so it had been sort of uh, talked about in even just the the mainstream baseball media for a while and you know I've heard bits and bobs from team employees some of which really strain credulity about what they think the Astros have been up to over the years but this seems like a pretty cut and dry case of going over the line that is clearly delineated in the rule book yeah I think like you would have sort of uh like oh let's say the Astros we're going through video of teams and using machine learning or something to figure out right. what the signs were on second base. And then they used a person on second base or, you know, taught, taught the base runner right. what, what the signs were going to be. And the, you know, the, the runner was able to communicate. I mean, I think that would, that's still, I mean, I don't know that that's even a gray area. That's probably still legal because, you know, you're just trying to figure out signs. But when you're using video in games, that's like, that's just, just, it's very blatant. Like you, there's, there's no exceptions. There's nothing else you could be doing. Like that's just very much against the rules. And you know, the, I think it was, it was the Red Sox that got somewhat punished correct. for this in that's the past. Correct. And so that was like, that was like the warning shot. It seems like the, the Red Sox are always doing the warning shots. They, they did it with international signings and then they did it with, with sign stealing and you know, the second guy, I think Kylie in his chat today said it's better to be punished first or something because uh, the the one that it happened second to gets gets much a much more harsh sentence. And I think that given the entire situation around the Astros organization and what's what's happened in the past, and that I would imagine that the penalty will will be pretty severe. And going back, I, I know like even when you you know the you talk about the teams doing bad things in this sort of competitive light you know chris correa went to jail obviously right. for hacking the astros and it was his defense and you know it was not a very good defense was that the astros had hacked them first and you know that lends a little more credibility to his defense it's still a bad defense and not one that will get you you know not getting jail time i mean I, I think the astros can't say well everyone was doing it right you know that that's that's the defense of a 12 year old um it's not the defense of a major league baseball team yeah i tend to agree i have i have two questions for you the first of which is you know you, you as you said when you have a guy on second it's not uncommon for for uh, there to be an attempt to relay signs to a hitter, this is tale as old as time, and uh, you know there's there's always there's a long history, a, a legacy even of teams and players in baseball, you know, walking right up to the line and sometimes crossing it in service of trying to win. And so it's not as if uh, this is the first time that we have seen cheating of some stripe, uh, even even of this kind, uh, well, science dealing, the, the machine learning aspect of it is new. But I guess my question is, Craig, 
how much cheating are you comfortable with in baseball? <laughs> is there a and, and I don't mean uh, you know I don't mean anything untoward that might rise to the level of criminality, but is there a is there a level of being a scamp that you are comfortable with in baseball, or do you prefer things to be to be very clean, as it were? I mean, there's sort of like a, a wholesome, clearly within the rules of cheating, you know, like sort catcher framing. Like, you're trying to fool an umpire right. into giving you a strike when it is a ball, but that's that's very normal. And also, when you're trying to frame a pitch, you don't necessarily know 100% of the time that the ball is going to be... They frame strikes, too, you know? Right. Like, that's just sort of a skill in order to make the pitch look as good as it, as it possibly can. You know, I think that in terms of, you know, I like if you want to say that the slide rules, you know, violating the slide rules. I, I am in favor of the rules that have been implemented over the past few years, and I wish that they were enforced better. But like violating those, that's sort of a, a form of, of cheating in that in that sense. I don't mind the guy on second trying to do whatever it is to sort of give a signal if he himself has figured out or someone on the team has figured out what what the signs are i think it's the job of the pitcher and catcher to you know sort of get it better i think you know i i know you we watch teams and you know they pull out cards instead of having to do a mound visit and i guess it's better than a mound visit but it's still a little bit odd you know and, and it doesn't really help the game necessarily i know like if you want to compare it to say the NFL, they had a sign-stealing problem that they couldn't really enforce. So what they did was they put a headset on the offensive coordinator and right. put a you know a speaker in the ear of the of the quarterback, or maybe they I think maybe they do it on defensive players too, like a linebacker, something like that. Yeah, but, typically the know, middle linebacker will have a headset in to hear from the coordinator. You know, there's some sort of solution there to to prevent the sort of science dealing that 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 goes on but i think that once you're in the realm of using you know audio video equipment in game especially right. when nobody else is allowed to do this and you're giving yourself sort of a a super home field advantage i think that that sort of crosses it, it crosses the line yeah that seems like a reasonable a reasonable sort of distinction to draw between what is, you know, sort of understood to be perhaps maybe we don't call it cheating, maybe we call it pressing one's advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus actually trying to to engage in some some subterfuge and some cheating to to try to win when you otherwise wouldn't. It is just a little bit less honorable, I guess, because it should be hard, you right. know, like. You know, it should be hard to figure out what what the signs are, and just substituting video is it's just sort of it's a backdoor way to cheat. And like right. If you're if you're already cheating, you know, just being a lazy cheater uh, makes it a little worse. And I gotta say, banging a drum two times is 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 on your lazier end, I would think. <laughs> it is a very funny marriage of high and low tech. <laughs> right because you think about what is necessary 
to do the actual video analysis to say, hey, that you know, this means uh, he's throwing a change up. And then to marry that with, now go bang on this plastic garbage can. <laughs> Uh, that is the only charming part of an otherwise not charming story. How pervasive do you think behavior like this might be? I realize this is speculation and, you know, Ken and, and Evan take pains in their piece to to note that they don't think that the Astros are the only team that are, in, that are trying to do this kind of thing, but the scale of it seems to be uh, appreciably different in Houston's case. I can't imagine that they are the only ones that have tried to figure out how to crack this nut, but how pervasive an issue do you think it is? Yeah, I think I one of the things that I found sort of humorous was that they went out of their way to say, basically on numerous occasions, like, we're finding out about this because people really hate the Astros. Yeah. And so I'm sure that other teams are doing it, you know, probably a vast majority are, are attempting to steal signs and in some way or another, whether teams are using video, it's it's sort of, it's fairly sophisticated. Yeah. And so I don't know that most teams would endeavor to, to go down that road. So I, I would think there would be less than half, maybe less than a third have concocted some sort of a method. Just anytime you have you know, that many people involved because you have to have like video people and, you know, the players and people, you know, yeah. in some somewhere beyond the clubhouse. When you are involving that many people in what could be called a conspiracy, um, we referred to it as a scheme earlier. Maybe conspiracy scheme. is is also accurate. Things are, are bound to get bungled or right. get out and it's not it's not something that i'm guessing most organizations think is worth the tiny little advantage that that they right. that they might get right because i don't think that we know i mean they're they're uh, one of the inherent difficulties of assessing the impact of a bit of business scheme conspiracy like this is that you do have a a very talented team and so it isn't as if sign stealing is the only way that the Astros can score runs, right? They are quite good at baseball on their own, but clearly there is some advantage or they wouldn't be engaged in something as risky as this. So sussing out, you know, which what the magnitude of the impact is, I think is a tricky question. And I don't quite know the best way to think about it because... I don't know. I guess you'd have to listen for a lot more banging. Yeah. I mean, I, I would guess that the penalty for the Astros will be severe and then they will stop looking and hope that that yeah. solves the, the problem. Because if they don't have to go looking for something, MLB is not going to. Well, and it's, you know, it is sort of interesting to think about. I think you are you are right to point out that they seem to have inspired based on other uh, cultural issues that might uh, exist and perception issues that might exist within the industry as inspiring other people to be a bit more forthcoming with their suspicions than they might otherwise be for organizations that they feel less passionately about. It would be interesting if there actually ended up being consequences, not just for the sign stealing, but for the sort of culture that they seem to have carved out for themselves and their place in the industry. Just as it's just interesting. What if there were actually consequences in the world? It's a, it's a, it's a, fu it's a fun thing to think about, consequences. Yeah, yeah.
you know, it's, you know, and I mean, there's obviously a lot of Astros people and other organizations. Right. And, you know, if something was deemed acceptable in organization A, it stands to reason that they might bring it along to organization B. And obviously, Mike Fires felt differently yeah. uh, about that. And, you know, I think that, you know, when we look back, this isn't obviously anywhere near, you know, steroids or that sort of thing. But there was no. definitely a culture at that time to protect all of the players that were using, even when it gave, even when it put, put the players who were not at a severe competitive disadvantage. Right. And so I don't know if this is, will sort of, I don't think we're going to see a floodgate of, of people coming out and saying things, but you know, I think that it's helpful for the game to have someone like Mike Byers say something, even if he's saying it mostly because he has a bit of an axe to grind. Yeah. While you have been chatting here, have just been doing a little bit of work on our split leaderboards, which are great. And uh, the Astros in 2017... <laughs> Uh, it's so irritating because they're just a really good baseball team on their own. <laughs> they don't need to engage in this nonsense. They had a 121 WRC plus as a team on the road. And they had a... Wait, this can't be right. It can't be the same. Can it? <laughs> yeah. It, I think that it is. And I think well, actually, it is. when you think about it, like that's that means that they were actually doing better on the road yeah. relative to most teams because yeah. they're... Is an inherent split advantage at right. at home compared to the road. So right. they actually did worse than than you might think at home. At home. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I Astros. Think that when, when you're dialing down to like some particular players on sure. getting some particular signs, I mean you're right. Team looking level, at team wide. Yeah, team level WRC plus is a very crude measure to apply to this situation because obviously it was a very specific intervention versus particular pitchers and it sounds like there were you know some hitters who were more enthusiastic about it as a as an enterprise that's a more value neutral word i don't know how i feel about that one as a bit of business than mm -hmm. uh than others so who's yeah. to say i mean i you know the banging on the drum twice i would think would be easier than trying to look at the second base the runner on second sure you know or yeah. like in another not quite the same example, when someone's tipping a pitch, you're still you're looking at something that the pitcher is doing with their glove or, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. That's that's something that's easy to pick up. I would think a big sound would be easy to pick up. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, that has been one sort of uh, bummer of a story to lead off the offseason. It's never good when teams potentially being engaged in several years and at least one of cheating is a is a good lead off and the rest of the offseason storylines so far have not been much better greg oh no no i don't think they have been you've written several pieces at fangrass.com and seem in fact you seemed to have a week where your focus was this big market team doesn't seem to be spending like they should stop it <laughs> yeah i did do that you did do that it was a nice little theme week it's yeah. unintentional, but I think uh, useful as a as a lens through which to examine this. So we are clearly in the the off season. There are a number of free agents available, all, many of them, in fact, free to sign. We ranked them at Fangraphs.com, and we are sort of in the midst of holding our collective breath to see who's going to sign first. But if past seasons have been any indication, we're probably going to be waiting for 
quite a while until significant and sort of high-profile guys sign. Yeah, you know, I think that given that the top three players are all represented by Scott Boris, and Scott yep. Boris has a reputation for holding things out, I think that some of that might be mitigated a little by the fact that I think at least it, last season pitching and particular starting pitching moved fairly quickly while it was the position players that dragged. Seemed, yeah. Dragged. Yeah. And the fact that he has two starting pitchers as his clients means that he has a little bit of an incentive to get one, you know, sort of off off the market. Yeah. The, to create the bidding war for the second one. Normally in this situation you would say, well he'll have Strasburg signed first and then Cole will get the higher deal. Yes. But the, you could see the reverse scenario where Cole is going to get, you'd say, well, Cole's going to get this enormous deal no matter what. Right. And taking the best pitcher off the market and leaving only one true ace available might bump up Strasburg. And that's sort of a, I, I don't know what strategy he will choose to employ. Uh, he might let it be dictated somewhat by the sort of level of interest in, in both pitchers. Yeah, I would imagine that, you know, when you're thinking about how to sequence these guys, we had, you know, just to remind folks, and we'll link to the the top 50 here um, in case they didn't have a chance to look at it, but we had Cole as our our first overall um, free agent, not just among the the pitchers, followed by Rendon and then Strasburg. So as you said, Boris reps the top three. I would imagine that in a vacuum – you know, people are going to be, teams are going to be much more highly motivated to sign Garrett Cole than they necessarily are to sign Strasburg, although I imagine they will both have healthy markets. We have seen some reports that Cole might not go until January, in which case I would be, I would be inclined to think that Strauss will go first, as you said, and then set up a very, very high AAV and large deal generally for Cole. I wonder when Rendon will go. How would, if you were Scott Boris, so just uh, start thinking of some crazy metaphors in your brain. You're Scott Boris. How would, how would you sequence them if it were up to you, Craig Edwards, who's now Scott Boris? If it were me, it's hard to say, okay, what's best for player A, player B, player C versus what extracts the most dollars from players A, B, and C combined? Right. Because I think Cole Strasburg Rendon would get the most money total combined, but going Strasburg Cole Rendon, you're going to get the bigger figure for Garrett Cole. I think. Right. So I think that in a theoretical world, I advise you know I tell Steven Strasburg, here's the situation. Right. And then sort of let him decide and also let Garrett Cole make whatever decision that that he wants because there's not a there's not a losing situation I think here you know there's not a situation where like when he was representing uh like say Jake Arrieta right where he's you know representing multiple people or whatever and then Jake Arrieta has to sign for 75 million dollars instead of the 125 or whatever that they were hoping for at the, at the beginning of of free agency there's there's not a scenario where these three guys don't get something extremely close to what everyone is expecting there's maybe right. some scenarios where they get a lot more 
but there's not that much of a downside to, right. to any of them. I think the the downside is is much further down down the line for the for the rest of the players. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, and this is perhaps a good chance for us to chat about some other uh, work you've done at the site lately. You know what we what we saw last year was at the top of the market was pretty robust, right? Those guys signed deals that were fairly large. And it was the guys in the sort of middle to bottom tiers of the free agent market that really saw, and we can maybe bracket uh, relievers away from this because for all of the decline in free agent value uh, or the value of those contracts, relievers have seen a weirdly robust market year to year, which I continue to find kind of funny. But the sort of middle to lower end is where we're really seeing the drop in the both in terms of the duration of contracts and their average annual value. And that's pretty consistent with some analysis you did looking at the crowdsource results that we we publish at Fangraphs. Yes, it is. What'd you find there, Craig? What were well, your findings? I, I found that, you know, the crowd was surprised. Um, and I was also surprised that, you know, about three years ago, free agent spending just sort of fell off a roof yeah. and the, that freeze happened mostly on the middle to, to 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 lower tier free agents and that was a a stark change from uh i went back to the off season between 2013 and 2014 and right. those those three years you know, the the crowd overstated things slightly but uh within you know a reasonable amount and then over the last three seasons, it's just been like a disaster for, yeah. for quite a few guys, especially the the players that we would think would get contracts in the the ten million dollars to, to forty million dollar range. That those are the guys that that have been hurt the most. Uh, part of that's because it seems like none of those players are getting you know the fifty million and sixty million dollars that that they would sometimes get, and then. A good deal of those players wouldn't end up signing for, you know, five to fifteen million dollars, and that's, you know, in some instances, you know, twenty million dollars less than than what what players were getting just a few a few years prior. And so it's a thing that happened three years ago, then it happened two years ago, and then it happened last year. And so I, I, it's it's enough to say that there's there's a bit of a trend with those mid tier free agents, and it's I, I think that. You know, there's always going to be some guys where you can say, well, they were asking for too much money. But when it's happening to everyone, you know, you can see that there's, you know, a fairly clear strategy, whether it's a negotiating strategy or whether it's, you know, a player evaluation strategy where those sort of those guys that we would think of as average players just aren't getting as much money as they used to. Right. It's understandable, and you noted this in your piece, that, you know, on any individual player, it can be kind of hard to predict that the bottom's going to fall out on that one guy. And so you can kind of forgive the crowd for being wrong on some of these because isolating which ones are going to be the subject of, you know, lower contract values is pretty tricky, but it does start to look troubling in terms of a, a league-wide trend, whether, as you said, it's one that's the result of coordination or or simply front offices evaluating players in pretty similar ways and and being, you know, specifically more interested in younger, cheaper guys than they are in in free agents that, you know, it can result in these in these guys signing later for a lot less money and for fewer years than we had 
we had seen them doing in, in prior trips. Like you can't imagine that Mike Moustakis would have had the experience he's had the last two years, 10 years ago, right? Yeah, and, you know, some of these players um, end up, you know, teams being correct on, but uh, mm-hmm. guys like Mike Moustakis, I mean, he's very much outperformed the money he received. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nelson Cruz would be another example who just seems to keep putting keep up hitting. Big, big, big numbers over and over again. Yeah, or like it's it remains very befuddling despite the, the rocky postseason and some whispers that he is maybe not always the easiest guy to get along that, you know, Yasmani Grandal got the deal that he did last year, right? That one I think remains one of the most glaring examples of us all looking around being like, what, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, it, it's one of those things where you know the the Mets went out and signed what looked to be a bargain catcher, and then got just terrible performance from right. Ramos. Right? Yeah, yeah, I believe just, so. Just did not did not work out for them. They they were deemed somewhat wise for not giving Grandal a, a four year contract for for sixty million dollars or whatever it was, and now it's looking like well maybe they should have. And maybe some other team should have as well. Um, and they will now have that opportunity. Yes. My question will be, will they, t- they uh, take advantage of that? I wonder if we can talk a bit about how that free agent issue sort of plays into a larger and related concern that you've highlighted, which is the move that some teams seem to be making, and you've written about the Cubs as a recent example of this, of sort of publicly contemplating tearing down a successful core and trading pieces away as some of these guys approach free agency. I'm going to ask you a question, which I anticipate I know the answer to, having edited those pieces and read them. But, hey, Craig, are you a fan of that? Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, I <laughs> I am not a fan of it. I, I do not think it's it's a it's a good idea. It's sort of uh I think a popular phrase is, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. That is a popular phrase. Yeah. I mean particularly you know, it, particularly when it comes to the, the Cubs and, and Red Sox, because in many ways the sort of bind, if you want to call it a bind, is is something that they they put themselves in yeah. in order to win a World Series and and they they did so you know when you look at at the Red Sox big salaries that are on the books it was they were trying to win a World Series and they did and now that they have won a World Series you know those large contracts aren't going to look as good as they once did because you know players decline with age and then the young stars that you have get more expensive and so sort of the bill is coming due for that world series and they've you know profited enormously from it and now they they're looking at the bill and they enjoyed the meal that they ate and for some reason they don't want to pay for it (laughs) and the the cubs are that's nice. I like that, Craig. It's a good little bit of writing you just did. <laughs> and the the Cubs are in the same situation. Uh, right. Theirs is, you know, theirs is slight, maybe slightly different in that you know some of the deals that they signed were post winning the World Series. They were 
trying to extend their window and you know they they did so they just fell short against some very good teams over the the, the past uh two or three years and you know Jason Hayward was signed before but then you know you Darvish and then they made a trade for Jose Quintana but they had to give up Aloy Jimenez and so as as a result they have some good but not great starting pitching and they don't have the players that they would maybe like to have or the financial flexibility that they would like to have but they you know are are also making an enormous uh, amount of money you know the the Red Sox are a team that I think basically owns their RSN and mm-hmm. I don't think that there's you know any reason to think that they're still not making very good money from that and I should note that you know the the profits that they receive you know from that enterprise uh, don't go into revenue sharing so we don't really when you're talking about a split between the players and the teams or uh, right. what the revenue sharing goes back for what the Red Sox are you know sharing with the Rays you know that that doesn't go into it and the Cubs are about to enter that situation this season um not right. that they weren't making good money on their deal with Comcast but they're about to be making uh, a whole lot more right. and trading away your best player from the World Series team when he's still under contract for two more years it seems like that's not like even I mean, I guess the Indians are contemplating that with Francisco Lindor, yeah. but like that's that's not even a move that like most small market teams would make. No, you would like you would make that person the one guy that you offer the you know hundreds of million dollars contract to to keep him around as the star face of the franchise, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, I mean, trading Chris Bryant or Mookie Betts, you know, away is. It's it's not something that you want to see as someone who is a fan of the game. And, you know, you make fun of the, how do I explain this to my kids? But, mm-hmm. like, you know, what what explanation could you possibly give to your kid for why Chris Bryant and, and Mookie Betts would, would leave, you know, yeah. their favorite team after bringing them a World Series title? And there's just not, there's not a good explanation other than, you know, the the owners want more money. Right. There's just not because trading Chris Bryant isn't going to extend the Cubs window. It's no. going to make it a lot smaller now with maybe some payoff into the future. I mean, we've seen what, you know, the White Sox aren't on the same scale as the Cubs, but they've gone on a full scale rebuild and they're now maybe about to about to come back up. But that's not what the Cubs are are talking about doing they're talking about trading one guy so they can save 20 million dollars to try and get you know a couple decent prospects which you know honestly they could probably go out and buy a couple decent prospects somewhere from some other team if they want well and i i'm about to make a point that is is quite obvious and so you'll have to forgive its obviousness but i think it's something that we apparently have to talk about which is that like you know there aren't a lot of chris bryant's and mookie betts's lying around right having players who you know can produce at that level, right, where you don't have the uncertainty of will this prospect develop the way that we hope and expect him to versus not, there is a tremendous amount of value in knowing, hey, I just have a Mookie Betts, and I know what a Mookie Betts is generally, and there may be year-to-year variation because that's how baseball works, and he could get injured because that's also how baseball works, but I know that that guy 
can produce at an MVP level, and he's on my team now. And generally, when you know those things, you want to hold on to those guys because they're hard to find, right? There, there are very few of them that produce at that level. And so I'm always, I know all the calculus that goes into it, but I, I sometimes wish that we would linger on that point a little longer, which is like, but you, but you know, you have a Mookie Betts, like, you know, that one, we do all this prospect hugging and all of that can be kind of silly, but we know what that one is, you know? Right. And then, you know, you, I'm sure you get questions from, you know, Cubs fans or Red Sox fans talking about the type of return they should be able to get right. back from Mookie Betts and Chris Bryant. And then they're inevitably disappointed by saying, well, you know, it's like, a couple back end top 100 prospects or maybe, you know, a guy and one guy in the top, you know, 30 or 40. And they're like, well, they should be worth more. It's really hard to find a Mookie Betts or a Chris Bryant. And you're like, you're so close. Yeah. You're so close. <laughs> like, that's the reason why you keep them. Right. Exactly. Because they're quite difficult to find and getting appropriate prospect return for those guys or even prospects plus major leaguer return for those guys is really challenging. So yeah, I, I, and these are related concerns, right? Because when you have teams that are very good and have been competitive, scaling down their competitive windows, not only does it have a knock-on effect on their own fan bases, but it makes it harder for those you know free agent guys who add a couple wins that might push you over the edge to find work right because there are fewer teams that are sitting there saying hey no we need five more wins those are the five we need because if we get those five we're in the postseason and if we don't then it doesn't matter and so it's it's very troubling craig yeah and i you know there's not a simple solution under the current collective bargaining situation uh obviously it's coming up in a couple years but right now you just you you can't force teams to spend money for a couple extra wins when that isn't going to help teams turn profit because they're already turning a profit right and so you have teams like you know the the yankees and the cubs and and the red sox who you know, they're going to draw a ton of fans regardless. They're going to get a bunch of TV money regardless. And, you know, they're, they're good teams, but they're not, they're not doing what it would take to push them sort of over the top. And then, you know, at the bottom, you have 70 win teams who don't see the point in getting to 75 wins when right. they can still make a profit being a, a losing team. And, you know, it's, it's all, you know, every team is in its own little sort of cycle. And I think especially in the American League right now, you have a handful of teams that don't need to do anything to get better because they're set in their situation and a handful of teams that have gone so far the other way that it, it takes so much to, to dig out to make them, to make them competitive. And so there's not the sort of added benefit there. I think that and I, I'm sure I've said this before, but I think we, for a long time, everyone, you know, fans and, you know, people in the industry took for granted that the more a team won, that the more money they would make. And right. that's still true, but the percentages are, are a lot lower than, than right. they used to be. Yeah, that relationship is decoupling to a concerning degree. 
and and I think that for you know there's a lot of you know contributing factors with the ability of teams to make money off the field, but ultimately it's still a regional project for especially the smaller to to mid market teams, and I think that's where yeah. that's where the sport is hurting the most. Yeah, and and it doesn't you know it does nothing to address that question that you're I don't know maybe your daughter would be asking you even though she is quite young and you're not a Cubs fan but why is Chris Bryant not in Chicago anymore it doesn't do anything to address that concern it just makes us all kind of grumpy it's not a great sign when a team that was recently in the World Series that has the AL Rookie of the Year and might have a Cy Young winner and potentially an MVP, although hopefully there's some reason seen on that, is being defined by cheating scandal and the rest of the league is like winning. What about it, though? If I were a billionaire and I owned a baseball team, I would be a maniac. How are there not different billionaires? (laughs) How are these billionaires not... I'm going to say a thing, and I don't follow the NBA closely anymore because uh, a billionaire spirited my team away in the dead of night to another city, and so I've been sort of prickly about it since then. But, you know, like uh, Steve Ballmer gets nuts about the Clippers, and it's the Clippers. He's on the (laughs) sideline being a maniac, throwing his arms up and making faces that everybody tweets about, and I have no idea what he's like as an an actual um, team owner, so I'm sure someone will tell us in the comments, and perhaps he's just like all the rest, but he puts on a better show. I will concede that that is a possibility and that I don't really know what I'm talking about, but like, where's where's the Steve Ballmer of baseball? Where's the guy who's just going to be a maniac behind home plate every night? Guy, gal, whomever. We need we need a maniac. We we missed Mike Elledge a little bit. It's it's quite possible that MLB owners are fairly selective in choosing who they allow. Yeah. To to buy a baseball team, and often it is someone who has previous ties to maybe yeah. owning a smaller part of a baseball team. It's sort of a vetting process, and that keeps out your billionaire maniac. Um, as, as it were, um, you know, I think, you know, I know nothing about John Sherman, the potential new owner of Kansas City, but he, he was a minority very, owner. He seems in, very buttoned up. <laughs> he was a minority owner in Cleveland and sort right. of, you know, bided his time to sort of, you know, I guess pay his dues. And, you know, I'm, I'm guessing the, the billionaires who, you know, would, go crazy behind home plate aren't the type of people who bide their time yeah. being the minority owner of, of of something. It might be true. Man, we want a class salary. That wasn't what we were talking about. It doesn't help that you're you're self selecting from a class of old, mostly white dudes yeah. who made billions of dollars in business. That's not like if you're looking for a maniac, that's not that's not the group you go to. Yeah, it's just there are a lot of, you know, when when one is possessed with that kind of money, you figure there are a lot of there are a lot of widgets you can buy. And I think that I had been operating under the assumption, and I don't think this is unique to me, that like the sports team ownership was a vanity project for a lot of for a lot of people who had the means to purchase them. And I think uh, we are realizing that there's just 
too much money in it now. It's just good business to own one of those franchises and watch it appreciate. And so you're you're getting into it less because you want to be the person, you know, with the trophy and more because you're interested in the return and that's that's troubling in a different sort of way. So that's a bummer. Craig, we should do we have a do we have a positive note we could end on? A feel good story? Yeah. Um I don't know. I'll I'll say that um, you know I really liked seeing Mike Schilt win Manager of the Year. Yeah, how about that? You know, I think that he is uh, a guy who you know obviously he's he's never played professional baseball, and that makes him somewhat unusual. And you know, he got into baseball through scouting and worked his way up through the minor leagues. And I think that when he was hired, not very many people. Uh, knew who he was and so there's a lot of speculation about maybe that the Cardinals should have done more searching to find someone maybe with a, a bigger name and they because you know, there was a lot of out of work former managers at the time and they decided to give Mike Schultz an extension and I think that uh, they've been rewarded for you know sort of letting him work his way up the ranks to mm-hmm. the point that he was ready to be a major league manager and that, you know, a few hiccups in the playoffs aside, he's done a, a very good job of sort of changing some of the conversation around who the Cardinals are yeah. over the last year or so. Well, that's a, I like that very much as a positive note to end on. Yeah, it is, it is always, it is good to see a variety of professional backgrounds represented in, in the managerial ranks because you hope that that opens up those positions to a variety of backgrounds more generally. So yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good, that's a good note. I'm pleased with that, Craig. Well, thank you. Craig, we we talked about your crowdsource piece and the the Cubs and Yankees pieces, so I will link to those when this goes up. Do you have anything else that you would like to plug? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Okay. I'm working on a secret project. I'll let you know. Oh, excellent! Oh, I'm very excited about that. And folks who are in New York can come and see you among among others next week, provided you have a ticket already. If you don't, we're very sorry. We will pick a venue with a greater capacity next time. Craig, where can people find you on Twitter? Craig J. Edwards. Sounds very official. Craig, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.